Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. This year's GOP primary race, as evidenced last night, perhaps more than others, does not exist in a vacuum. When Barry Goldwater accepted the GOP nomination in the San Francisco Cow Palace in 1964, he spoke these words, written by the conservative firebrand of the day, Phyllis Schlafly. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. And let me remind you also that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. Ever since that moment, so-called conservatives have been falling all over themselves, trying to live up to those words. Words that had very little to do with the true conservatism of Edmund Burke or Michael Oakeshott, and words that were later called into question by Goldwater himself. But the attempt to elevate their mythology, as Ted Cruz, for example, is trying to do, particularly in a rapidly evolving world, may be the final nail in the Republican coffin. This is the context of E.J. Dionne's insightful new book, Why the Right Went Wrong. E.J. Dionne writes about politics in a twice-weekly column in the Washington Post. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a government professor at Georgetown, and a frequent commentator on politics for NPR This Week and Meet the Press. E.J. Dion joins us from Iowa this morning, and it is my pleasure to welcome him back here to the program to talk about why the right went wrong. E.J., thanks so much for joining us. What a joy to be with you again. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. In many ways last night, Ted Cruz's victory, even more than a victory for Trump, seems to be further affirmation of so much of what you write about in Why the Right Went Wrong. Well, first, as an author, I appreciate your saying that. Uh, but I think there's a lot of truth in it. Um, what you saw here was, uh, first, uh, the, the power of the evangelical conservative wing of the Republican Party, which uh, Cruz organized uh, extremely effectively and had a lot of support from uh, the figures here who have been part of the movement for a long time. But the core of uh, Cruz's campaign really is very much the uh, comes from the mood of that Goldwater uh, Goldwater period. The first sentence in my book is the history of contemporary American conservatism is a story of disappointment and betrayal. Um, and one of the central arguments of the book is that ever since Goldwater, uh, conservative politicians have had to make a series of promises that they couldn't possibly keep. Uh, they kept promising a smaller government when the truth is most Americans, as a practical matter, don't want government to be that smaller because they don't want to cut things like Medicare or Social Security. Uh, that's true even of Tea Party people, many of whom are at or near uh, retirement age. Uh, they promised to radically roll back the changes brought about by the rights revolution, the rights for women, African-Americans, cultural change for uh, gay marriage. Uh, but the country itself doesn't want to roll that back. Um, and now there's great unhappiness about the ethnic makeup of the country, which was the new ethnic makeup of the country, which was actually set in motion back in 1965 in the immigration bill. So we this conservative politicians said, we will change these things. These things don't change. And so you have a politician like Ted Cruz, who is attacking the establishment, who says these folks have said over and over, they do these things and they didn't do it. And so I will do it. Um, the other thing you saw last night um, is how much the Republican Party has changed, because when Barry Goldwater gave that speech, 
there were not only a lot of moderate Republicans, there were even a lot of liberal Republicans in those days. So people like Jacob Javits in New York or Ed Brooke uh, in Massachusetts. Not only are the liberals gone, but many of the people who were moderate Republicans have left uh, the party, meaning uh, that the votes in these primaries come very heavily, um, much more so than even 20 years ago, uh, from uh, very conservative people. Isn't there also a secondary overlay to this? Because taking your point about what Republicans have promised and the inability to deliver on those promises, that over the years in the attempt to make up for not delivering on those, there have been repeated attempts to find side issues which are coming back to haunt the party, whether it was Nixon's Southern strategy or Reagan's anti-60s cultural pushback, the degree to which the evangelical movement became part of the party, Gingrich trying to both localize and nationalize the party at the same time. Each of these things, it seems, has been in response to those failures that you're talking about. And what it's done is create layer after layer of further problems for the party. No, that's that's true. And you really saw that play out this week. And you're going to see it play out all year uh, around uh, immigration, for example, where um, the leadership of the party, the business class of the party supports uh, immigration uh, reform. Um, but the rank and file of the party, uh, large chunks of it, particularly members of the Tea Party, um, are very uneasy about immigration reform. They're, they're, you know, at the far end, you have some really extreme and, in Trump's case, outright racist statements uh, about uh, immigrants. And the leadership is sort of tied up in knots based on its old uh, positions. Um, so that Marco Rubio has had to go back and forth and back and forth on immigration. He supported uh, the immigration uh, bill that Republicans and Democrats negotiated in Congress. Uh, then now he sort of then he backed away from that bill. And you saw this in the Republican debate here that Trump didn't attend. Uh, and so this is creating a problem because the farther right they go on immigration in the primaries, the more trouble they're going to have securing Latino votes in the general election. Um, and Mitt Romney got 26, 27 percent of the Latino vote. And you can't win the presidency if your share of the Latino vote is that low. And it could go lower this time for them. And then obviously there's a lot of back and forth around racial politics, uh, which we could talk about if you'd like. And, you know, I think we have to be very careful about that. There are plenty of conservatives who are not backlash people, are not responding on race. They're just they're ideological conservatives. But. You know, uh, racial politics has been at the very center of the creation of this coalition, and it was Barry Goldwater's campaign that realigned the White South uh, in uh, a response to Lyndon Johnson's support of the Civil Rights Bill. That's always been bubbling below the surface, and sometimes it's very explicit. It, there also seems to be a progression, the degree to which racial politics, as practiced by Goldwater and then by Nixon and his Southern strategy, that racial politics begat cultural politics, begat the class politics of today. Uh, you sound very biblical. Uh, <laughs> that's exactly right. Uh, and, you know, it's, the interesting thing about Trump, that there's a side of, you know, it, it, there's a side of Trump that we should not in any way ever take seriously, the sort of the politics of ego uh, and the kind of opportunism that, you know, as a lot of conservatives are on to. Um, but there's another side that I think both parties need to take very seriously, which is that there are a lot of white working class people who are hurting 
uh, in this economy, who've seen their wages cut, who've had to trade uh, relatively well-paying or very well-paying blue-collar work, you often unionized blue-collar work, uh, for much, uh, much lower-paid service jobs. Um, and the Trump movement is a kind of class war in the Republican Party um, led by a billionaire. Um, and these voters have voted Republican for a long time, but have not gotten material benefits out of that vote. And I think there's a frustration um, uh, in, among these folks, and it's a legitimate frustration, and Trump is exploiting it. And by the way, this isn't some, you know, I am a liberal, and I'm very open about that in the book, um, but this isn't just a liberal view. You know, there are a couple of writers, Ross Scouted, who writes a column mm-hmm. for the New York Times, another really smart conservative, Raihan Salam, um, have talked about the party ignoring these voters at its peril, and now that peril uh, is right there before them. In many ways, this is the payback for the what's the matter with Kansas argument. Yeah, so that's that's well said. That's um, This is, you know, Trump is the payback. Uh, and, the you know, the question is, you look at this array of Republican candidates, and you look at what they are proposing on taxes, and uh, what their economic policies look like, and it is the same old trickle-down. They are all proposing very steep uh, tax cuts for the best off. And, you know, they sometimes sprinkle it with a little bit of earned income tax credit for uh, lower-income people, but the, 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 the thrust of their policies is all on the other side. And, you know, I think, you know, some of that is also what's fueling the, the Bernie Sanders uh, insurgency on the Democratic side, a backlash against that kind of economics. Um, and I think, you know, in my book, I go back, you know, I do have a conservative hero in my book, and the conservative hero is Dwight Eisenhower, where I think that kind of conservatism and that kind of republicanism, um, which recognizes that, you know, the programs of the New Deal uh, were necessary to make the country fairer and to undo some of the economic problems. Ike was very conservative when it came to budgets. He was fiscally very responsible. But he was also willing to look at real investments in the American people. And so, you know, his two big programs were the interstate highway system. Uh, I think it is the biggest construction project in American history. Uh, and also the student loan program, which helped millions of people, including me, go to college. So there's a kind of conservatism that says, you know, we do support old values. We support business. We support balanced budgets. But we also understand the country has to move forward. And I'm not sure, you're not going to see that, I think, in this uh, election. I think it may take uh, one more electoral defeat for conservatives to really sort of find, the, the, the conservatives who know there's a problem here, to really find their voices and say, we cannot go on like this uh, uh, forever. It's interesting that it's hard to find those voices within the elected conservative political class, and Paul Ryan may be the only exception. Right, and even Paul Ryan is extremely conservative when you look at mm-hmm. his uh, uh, his budgets. I mean, uh, Ryan knows that the old talk doesn't work. Some of it was his talk, by the way. I mean, he was a guy who used to talk about makers and takers, um, and he's understood that that rhetoric doesn't work. Um, but he has yet to really back it up uh, program- programmatically. But I also think within the Republican Party, there's a real fear that if you break with this orthodoxy, First, you get attacked by uh, Fox News and a, a whole panoply of right-wing talk show hosts who are an increasingly important part of the Republican power structure. 
Um, but you're also worried about losing primaries. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me watching this race so far is that the so-called establishment, and I'm not sure there really is an establishment anymore, uh, but the so-called Republican establishment says, hey, we've got to stop Trump and Cruz. They look around for votes, and a lot of those voters left the Republican Party back in the 80s and 90s, um, who said this party is more far to the, more, too far to the right for me. And so they became Demo- uh, independents, and in many cases became Democrats. And so that means that launching a counter-offensive against um, this uh, very far-right ideology uh, becomes very challenging, and a lot of Republicans are scared to do it. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out as what what seems like, at least, the laws of gravity are starting to return. I mean, you look at Ted Cruz winning Iowa, it's hard to imagine another primary that Ted Cruz is going to win. The Trump bubble seems to have burst a little, and maybe the air is going out of it as we speak. And and the Marco Rubio lane seems to be the one that has the momentum at the moment. But I'm not sure that that really changes a whole lot, except that it brings the estab- the quote unquote establishment, a little more back into the game. Uh, I that that's true to a degree. Although now uh, let's look at Iowa. Now, granted, the Iowa caucus electorate is a very conservative, very evangelical electorate. Uh, nonetheless, if you take the Ted Cruz vote and add to it uh, all of the, the vote for the various other kind of evangelical conservative candidates, you got about 40 percent. Uh, Trump, last I looked, had 24 percent. That's 64 percent of the party. Uh, if you add Rubio plus Christie plus Bush plus Kasich here, uh, you've got all of 30 percent. So you're still talking about a party where, yes, there looks to be there was certainly a mini Rubio surge here because he was the only non-Trump Cruz candidate um, in, really in competition here. So a lot of the more moderate vote flooded to him. But that was still, uh, when you add all that up, it's only 30%. And the other thing is Marco Rubio is very, very conservative. He was elected mm-hmm. as a Tea Party candidate. I was actually out last night at a, uh, a Republican caucus in a place called Urbandale, and it was a moderate um, middle class, uh, mi- mixture of middle class and affluent. These are kind of old fashioned Republicans. Rubio won the precinct overwhelmingly. I think it was 227 to 88 uh, for Trump. But here you have people who in past days would have voted for a genuine moderate or a moderate conservative having to vote for this very, very conservative Republican because he was more moderate than the rest of the party. So that even Rubio shows how much the party has shifted. Given all of these shifts and given the the state of the party, which is strong on the state and local level, it's, it's been functional and successful as a local party, is the goal of the establishment, is the goal of, of whatever wise men there are in the Republican Party, if there are any, simply to not lose a hold on, on the local aspect of the Republicanism at this point? Well, actually, I think that's more the strategy of the right of the party. The establishment really wants the White House back. And the very strength Republicans have in midterm elections, it's a great thing for them, and it's a problem for the Democrats, and the Democrats have to solve it. But it also speaks to a long-term challenge uh, that the Republicans face. Why do they do so well uh, in midterm elections? Well, it's because their constituency is aging. It's a very old, overwhelmingly white constituency. Uh, the Democrats rely much more on the votes of younger Americans who tend not to vote in midterms. So for the time being, that gives the Republicans a lot of power in state and 
uh, local politics and has given them through reapportionment and gerrymandering a real lock on the House of Representatives. But in the long run, a party that relies on the votes of older voters um, simply does not have a great future. The rising generation is more moderate and progressive, uh, and the, it is also more Latino, it's more Asian, it's more African-American. Uh, and so even over, over time, even the party's hold on state and local governments will be uh, endangered simply by the process of generational change. Um, and as I say in the book, I, I talk to a lot of Republicans who are well aware of this. Uh, a Republican poster called Whittiers, the Republican chair out in your state, Jim Brulte, mm-hmm. um, is very aware of what happens when the Republican Party uh, alienates the young and uh, Latinos and Asians. Um, but they, those voices still are not a uh, majority in the party yet. You talked earlier about uh, perhaps they have to lose again nationally to, to really realize this. Assuming that they do lose again nationally, how do they begin to address this and redefine the party in light of the things that we've been talking about and coming from where they have been for all these many years since 1964? Well, there are two things. One, there does seem to be a rule of three uh, in these matters that uh, it took the Democrats three defeats back in the 1980s to say we've got to do politics somewhat differently if we're going to win and bill clinton came along and um you know and won two uh, presidential elections in britain which is i think a more relevant uh, comparison uh, even um uh, david cameron um you know i'm so that cameron's left in my own politics but he is mo- a moderate modernizer mm-hmm. and cameron was only able to push the conservative party of britain in a new direction after they had lost three consecutive elections. And I think what you see here is some Republicans who quietly know that what is going on now cannot work in the long run, um, trying to make uh, changes in the party. Um, but I think they also, as I say, have this worry that there is not room for them to make these changes, um, you know, given the nature of the primary electorate. I think all those people find their voices after a third consecutive defeat, and say, you know, do we want to be out of the White House forever? Um, and I, I think that there is sort of the kindling of uh, this, uh, you know, fire of change, if I can sort of fracture a metaphor there. Um, and But uh, I, I think the defeat, a defeat would like to kindle. To what extent, though, do so many Republicans blame the last two defeats on nominating what is perceived within the party as moderates in McCain and Romney? Well, that is always the battle cry of the conservative wing. And it, it really goes back to Goldwater, where um, uh, the, the conservatives said, we can win. We've never tried a real conservative. This guy Eisenhower obviously wasn't uh, the real thing. If we only uh, nominate the right candidate, there's a silent vote that's been out there that will turn out for us. And we saw that, you know, that silent vote wasn't there. That Barry Goldwater lost one of the worst uh, landslides in uh, American history. So that's always there. Uh, and indeed, you're quite right that that is what they said about McCain uh, and what they said about Mitt Romney, even though Romney had moved well to the right of where he had been when he was governor of Massachusetts. Um, you know, which is why I think that, um, you know, but if the party, uh, if Ted Cruz, for example, prevails, I know there is no one in the party, including the most hardened conservatives, who could say Cruz did not give our ideology a shot. He's running uh, as the as the real deal. Um, Rubio, they, if he got the nomination and lost, they tried to do that, 
Uh, but it's a lot harder with Rubio, who was elected very consciously as a, a Tea Party candidate. But you know, that argument is always made, and occasionally the left has made it in the Democratic Party. Um, but I think the brute fact of uh, defeat uh, sort of concentrates people's minds. Where does the anger and polarization that's in the country right now play out within this context we've been talking about? What I argue in the book is that what we have in the country is asymmetric uh, polarization, which means that um, in the end, if you look at all the numbers, the Republican Party has moved farther to the right than the Democrats have. Two uh, numbers about that. It's uh, Pew has done some very good research. The Pew Research Center has done some very good work on this. Um, if you ask um, Republicans and Democrats the question, do you prefer politicians who compromise to get things done, or do you prefer people who stick to their positions? Um, among Democrats, 6 in 10 say, well, we want compromises to get things done. Among Republicans, only about a little over a third of Republicans say that. So already going in, in the whole approach to politics, um, you have uh, a, a different idea of what politicians are supposed to do. And then if you ask about the makeup of the party, again, roughly two-thirds of the uh, Republican Party uh, are conservative, including more than a third who are very conservative. Whereas on the Democratic side, you've only got 30, 35% who call themselves liberal, so that the Democratic Party is a broader uh, ideological uh, coalition. Um, this is what explains why it's been so hard to govern under Barack Obama. When you look at Obamacare, Obamacare was actually a collection of Republican ideas. Um, you know, the health care exchanges were an idea that Mitt Romney put into effect in Massachusetts that he got from uh, the Heritage Foundation. The individual mandate was put forward by Republicans as an alternative to President Clinton's health care uh, proposals and Hillary Clinton's health care uh, proposals. Now, um, there can't be any cooperation on these issues. And I think that when you look at the kind of gridlock that this has produced in Washington, it really does create a lot of anger and uh, polarization. And then the last fact, which affects everybody across the spectrum, is the, the damage of the Great Recession, all the people who lost their homes, all the people who lost their jobs, sort of put right on top of declining wages, something that's been happening for decades, um, you know, with a small exception in the late 1990s, um, you've got a lot of alienation and anger out there. And again, you know, there's a lot of justification for it. And finally, with all the Republicans that you talked to and interviewed in, in working on why the right went wrong, who gets it? Who are the voices that, that kind of understand these things that you're talking about? Well, there, I have a, I, I talk to a lot of um, you know Republican policy folks as well as some politicians. There are um, you know there are there are a number of politicians who get it. I talk a lot to Steve Lattoretta, who's a retired Republican congressman from Ohio, and he jokes he was a big supporter of uh, federal um, you know investment in transportation. He said, you know, I quit Congress when we couldn't even pass a transportation bill anymore. And this guy is now seen as moderate, even though he came in with the Gingrich Congress. It's a, by any measure, uh, he's a real conservative. There are a lot of conservative intellectuals, people like you all live in, I talk about a lot. But I also am, I am sort of um, sympathetic to them in, in the fact that they're at least trying to come up with new ideas. Uh, I am critical because I think they are still too constrained by this uh, consensus in the other, uh, within the party. So they're not willing to break out enough yet. But one guy in the presidential race who has broken with this 
um, and who has made at least some progress in New Hampshire. We'll see if uh, Rubio third place here displaces him up in New Hampshire. Is John Kasich? Um, you know, Kasich is a very interesting guy because he was a Jewish Republican, a budget balancer, and he's still very conservative. But in Ohio, um, he fought his own party to uh, uh, put into effect the Medicaid expansion under Obamacare. It's very interesting. He had a religious conversion after his uh, parents were killed in a car crash. And in arguing with his own party about why the Medicare, uh, Medicaid expansion and helping the poor was important, he said, you know, when I buy St. Peter, is not going to ask me, did I balance the budget? He asked me, what did I do to the least, uh, for the least of these? Um, and so I think watching somebody like Kasich is interesting. And then I see my fellow communists at the Washington Post, Mike Gerson, the original uh, compassionate uh, conservatives, <laughs> a conservative, I think we need a kind of revival of compassionate conservatism, but it has to go farther and be more fundamental than it was when George W. was president. E.J. Dion, the book is Why the Right Went Wrong, Conservatism from Goldwater to the Tea Party and Beyond. E.J., I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It is a real joy to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.